uh, webinar hosted by People's Health Movement South Africa. We have participants from South Africa, but also from uh, other countries, both as presenters and as participants, and I hope this will be a, a useful discussion. We're talking about an issue that's um, becoming increasingly relevant at the moment. We know with the COVID pandemic, the mantra of flattening the curve relies upon our ability to discover technologies which will change how the epidemic affects the global population, principally vaccines, but also other technologies. Essentially, we're trying to keep our hospitals uh, relatively clear, able to cope with the number of patients arriving pending the arrival of a vaccine, which will relieve us, hopefully, of the terrible quandaries facing our clinicians in rationing healthcare. So People's Health Movement and, and the other organizations it's partnered with in the coalition, the Civil Society Coalition on COVID-19, have been discussing many of these issues, and it particularly intersects with the relationship with the private sector. And we came up with this idea of holding our next webinar on this topic, looking at equity and access to health technologies for COVID. And we're going to run this webinar uh, over the next two hours with two inputs, um, one from Yusuf Fada, who's an academic working in the field of intellectual property in South Africa, and uh, one from K.M. Gopa from Third World Network, an active PHM member in India, who's going to be talking about some of the Indian experience and the global perspectives. We'll have a question and answer. And then uh, we've asked Tracy Naledi, who's chair of the board of the uh, Takano, uh, which is a, a NGO active in the health equity space, to provide um, a sort of commentary on what civil society should be doing to maximize access and equity uh, in access to these technologies, and then close with a general discussion about uh, what civil society can do going forward. I'm not going to ask everyone to introduce themselves, but if you do ask a question, please do just say who you are and where you're from. For the meanwhile, can I ask everyone to mute themselves? I'm going to also mute myself and then just briefly introduce our first speaker. So Yusuf Vardas at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. He's a professor of law. He's previously um, worked as a director of the law clinic. He's been active in many uh, community activities, civil society groups, and his area of work has been around intellectual property both developing policy in South Africa, but also across the African uh, Union area. So thanks very much, uh, Yusuf, and over to you. Uh, thank you, Leslie, and good afternoon, and well, I guess good evening in, in some parts of the world uh, to all the comrades, colleagues, and, and friends who are uh, joining this broadcast. It's a real honor to be part of the uh, webinar of the PHM. I have fond memories of my uh, Cape Town last year where I met with Sundar and uh, Kopa and many others. That was a very productive uh, session. So uh, happy to be here again. So I'm going to talk briefly on the sort of South African patent situation mostly, uh, trying to highlight what some of the problem areas are and how the reform process that had been initiated sought to take this forward. And of course, why possibly, and, and, and it's stuck at the moment. So um, here's the brief outline of the issues that I want to uh, cover. Just dealing briefly with some misconceptions about what we're talking about, why access is a problem, 
and what are the IP issues, intellectual property issues that are involved, why reform is important, and then looking quickly at the evolution of the IP policy and what are the key reforms that have come out of that. And then finally, rounding up with some, some demands that are emerging in the current context in relation to COVID-19 and how the intellectual property landscape, intellectual property policy intersects with what's happening at the level in, term, in terms of equitable access to technologies. So that's broadly the outline. So some of the misconceptions, I think uh, for many of us on this webinar, it's uh, old news, but IP and patent laws are not new, as you know. In South Africa, we've had legislation for more than a century, in fact, from even the pre-Union of South Africa in the early 20th century. So um, those were the result of South Africa having been colonized like India and many other countries by the British crown, as it were. And as a result of that, what was, had happened was that the British colonial legislation on intellectual property, including the Patents Act, were adopted willy-nilly in our country. So we were stuck with this colonial model. It doesn't take much to guess that what it meant was that these laws were primarily serving the crown, the metropole, rather than the colonies. And of course, that continues to be the case. Uh, where we have the remnants of these policies still in place. Secondly, access problem is not a new one either. And of course, you know, I think the access issues have in the last couple of decades has always been a problem. And I think, you know, Gopal and others can talk to this at, uh, with more authority that, for example, in India, before the Indian uh, Act of 1970, India was probably paying the highest prices for medicines compared to the rest of the world. So access is a problem everywhere. It has been a problem, and it is not something that has emerged only recently. Of course, a lot of the mobilization and activity by civil society and other players has brought this to the fore more recently. But access has been a problem for ages. And thirdly, the idea of flexibilities that we talk about, and I'll talk about in a little more detail in a moment, are not new issues either. I mean, there have been uh, provisions in previous in legislation that countries have had, which have uh, you know allowed for some measure of flexibility. Whether they have been used effectively is another story. But just to say that this language is not an entirely new one. It's just that it takes a particular form and uh, you know resonance in, in the present period. So quickly, why is access to medicine? and other health technologies such a problem. And I think that's got to do with two broad reasons. The one is that there is a premium on such goods. And the second is that, that there is a total lack of transparency about everything that actually happens around, around these goods, these medicines and so on. So just looking at the premium on the goods, firstly, they are largely manufactured in the North. And of course, that has changed somewhat with India and China being major manufacturers as well. But historically, that has been the situation. Secondly, these goods are protected by strong intellectual property rights, which gives the holders long periods of exclusive monopoly protection, which means that nobody else can enter the market and uh, thereby bring the price down, with the result that the sole, the sole supplier of that particular product can command any price that they deem fit. And then thirdly, in relation to that same problem, when we have a single uh, supplier, then we will see how the problem of availability and limited quantities of supply can be a problem. And we've seen that most recently with test kits 
and various other personal protective types of equipment that are in short supply because so few suppliers, largely because of the intellectual property protections and hold that they have over these products. And then where transparency is concerned, there is a complete veil as far as anybody can tell where the costs of developing and researching medicines is concerned. To this day, no single pharmaceutical company has opened its books and said, of course, in support of its claim that R&D is very expensive and therefore we need 20-year monopolies to recoup our R&D. No company to date has opened their books and said, this is what this particular drug is actually cost us. And we know that there are good reasons for this because the lack of transparency enables them to raise their profit margins in a way in which you know, they, they cannot be questioned because they're protected. The second uh, problem with the lack of transparency is involved in the manufacturing processes as well. And that again, very little is known about who manufactures, how it's done, what kind of processes are involved in the manufacturing, where active pharmaceutical ingredients are processed from and so on. So again, another veil which is uh, hiding a lot of very useful public information and that is uh, creating, contributing to the problem of access. And then finally, uh, we know that uh, there is, we don't know what the uh, pharmaceutical companies are investing in the development of drugs, but we do know uh, reasonably well what public funding is going into uh, development of medicines. And again, here, this public funding is not uh, sufficiently acknowledged. Uh, there are usually very little conditions attached to the public funding that is uh, in a given, whether it's through the NIH or various other institutes, to uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and the result is that the public is paying several times for the medicine that we use. Firstly, through the taxpayers' dollars, or rands, or rupees, or whatever they might be. And secondly, when the prices are inordinately high, it, it means that we have a double whammy there. So I think these are the main areas that contribute to uh, the access problem. So when we talk about the strong intellectual property rights that uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers have over these goods, uh, what are we talking about? And uh, routinely we would refer to patents because that is, the, that is the commonest and in fact the strongest form of monopoly that they actually get. So we all know now that since the TRIPS agreement came into operation in 94, beginning of 1995, every country had to grant a 20-year protection, uh, patent protection on their medicines, whereas some countries previously did not have uh, laws that required them to protect product patents, like India uh, and Brazil, from 1995 onwards. And of course, later, if you take the transition period into account, countries were obliged to allow this. So this is the strongest form of protection that is there. But this is not, not by any means the only protection that pharmaceutical manufacturers or the holders of these very important, what we consider to be public goods, have over these goods. The second important protection is what is known as data exclusivity. And this simply means that it gives the holder of that right of that uh, data and this data may be the results of clinical trials and various other kinds of data the right to ban the use of these uh, data when a regulator is considering a follow-on application for the generic medicine usually what happens is the regulator after it has approved the innovator or the branded product has this 
information already in its dossier. Now, if a genetic manufacturer came along and wanted to have an equivalent product approved, they did not need to supply the clinical trial data and data to prove safety and efficacy and so on all over again. Uh, apart from anything else, that would be unethical to, to require people to go through trials to prove what we already know works. So um, with this sort of exclusivity, the, uh, the claim that pharmaceutical manufacturers will make is that uh, nobody can use our clinical data and therefore the genetic uh, applicants cannot succeed. What data exclusivity then means is that this data remains barred from the use by the regulator for whatever period of exclusivity is allowed, and that uh, acts as a break on, on um, genetic competition, which means that we are not likely to get genetics entering the market uh, in good time, and it will delay uh, entry, and it will uh, cause the prices to remain artificially inflated because we have a monopoly control and a single supplier. So data exclusivity is a very serious concern. And even in case instances where, for example, there is a patent and a um, compulsory license, for example, has been granted to override that patent, right, as has happened in some cases in some countries. What data exclusivity will mean is that the genetic uh, equivalent will still not be able to enter the market because it cannot be approved by the regulator. So while the patent has been bypassed, the data exclusivity has not been bypassed and continues to act as a barrier. So that's the problem there. And then moving along, uh, there are other uh, types of protections which are not necessarily all intellectual property, but are related to that, which can act as a uh, constraint on, on, on genetics entering the market sooner. So for example, biological resources like cell lines. Now we know already from the COVID-19 experience that in the last couple of months, this has been quite an amazing uh, leap for science, if you like, because whereas previously, most scientists and most institutes working on this would work in secret and would not share the results of their uh, scientific advances and so on, and uh, for example, what is the genetic makeup of the SARS-2 COVID virus? And uh, now that is being shared. So in a sense, that has been a huge advance. But of course, uh, this practice will continue if it's not made into a, uh, you know, a standard uh, operating sort of guideline and something that is uh, good for all time. Uh, there's also trade secrets, which relate usually to formulas and processes and designs which accompany a particular patent or a particular invention. And by continuing to maintain secrecy about these uh, formulas and so on, the uh, pharmaceutical companies then deny uh, the public the right to access them and to be able to get, uh, you know, follow-on innovation or to be able to get genetics entering the market as uh, soon as possible. And, and that is also the case with industry know-how, in other words, what uh, information that is, the practical information that is available to within the industry, uh, unless it is shared, uh, it will delay the process of uh, making those copies and advancing uh, you know, that particular science. So these are the uh, list of, of, of some of the barriers that continue to exist in addition to the 20-year patent barriers. So I'm going to uh, move on to the next slide and switch quickly to why reforming the patent landscape in South Africa has been so important. Right? And uh, this is information which many of you already know. But the bottom line is that South Africa 
as a non-examining system, which means that patents are granted merely on the compliance with certain formalities. Uh, they have to tick a box, they have to fill in forms, pay the fee, and then they get, they get the patent after those things are you know, um, acceptable. This, of course, is a carryover from the sort of British system. And the fact is that too many patents that are granted are actually not deserving patents because they've not been examined. Nobody can tell whether they are truly new or inventive or industrially active. So this is a practice that's known as, as evergreening, and it's a serious problem. Uh, so uh, I think I covered the point of evergreening before uh, I got muted. So I'll just uh, take it from there. So what is happening is that uh, we, in one year, the study that we had done showed that in one year, 2008, South Africa had granted no less than 2,442 pharmaceutical-related patents. And I mean, that is compared to something like 376 that Brazil had granted over a longer period, three or four years something of that nature. So this, so this is an indication of what's wrong with the patents uh, system that we have in the country. And of course, multiple patents without any doubt uh, block the entry of competitors so that it's very difficult for somebody wanting to produce a generic version of a patented medicine to know which uh, patents are on that particular product and to be able to do that. And they'll be very afraid to enter that terrain because they don't want to be infringing and therefore you know, be sued and so on. So um, South Africa's uh, patent legislation is way, way um, behind in terms of where it should be. We've had two and a half decades since TRIPS and about 20 years since the Doha Declaration, and access continues to be a crisis because of this system. Now, access won't work, and especially for COVID. Uh, it can't depend on, firstly, charity from the pharmaceutical industry, because that's not something that they do well. And we know, you know from experiences that we've had globally on the HIV uh, AIDS uh, situation that, that uh, you know, pharma is really after profits and that you know, um, reducing the prices of medicines is not part of its business model. And secondly, uh, voluntary mechanisms alone won't do it. So for example, there are very many useful and good, uh, you know, um, interesting and possibly constructive suggestions that are globally being discussed now, like the voluntary uh, access pool and so on. Uh, and those, if they work and they're able to uh, you know, bring in the licenses and the know-how from the pharmaceutical industries into these, this kind of pool, they could have a, a tremendous uh, impact on, on, on bringing the prices and, and of, of uh, medications down. But those mechanisms alone won't work because you know it's voluntary, and if they uh, choose not to become part of this pool, then that's it. You know, we're stuck with uh, mm -hmm. high prices. So, um, what we need, in fact, is proactive measures. In other words, where South Africa is concerned, we need to ensure that there's an examination system, that in fact there's a various forms of opposition that are available, so you can ensure that unwarranted and undeserving patents are not granted, and various other exclusions and exceptions. But in particular, we need to ensure that we have the possibility of granting open licenses, not exclusively, but particularly uh, in, in the context of uh, health emergencies like we've got now. So these are the reasons why it's important to reform the law. Now, I'll quickly run through the evolution of South Africa's intellectual property policy. As I said, 
the Patents Act is from 1978, the one that's actually in operation now. There were versions of the Act previously. And of course, as you can see, this was before we had democracy. So the legislation has not taken into account, for example, the constitutional values that you know, govern our society now. Uh, then in 94, 95, um, the TRIPS agreement was uh, adopted and South Africa amended its laws in 1997 to become TRIPS compliant. But it did so in a hurry and in a very um, in, in appropriate fashion so that the law as it stands now continues to be access unfriendly. So it's not really, uh, does not contain strong flexibilities, for example. There's a long history of civil society mobilization, you know, from the HIV uh, campaigns, continuing into the more recent campaigns, which I was, I think there might be a speaker who will address it. So I won't really go into that. But I just want to say that there, were, there are three versions of the draft policy that the uh, South African government came up with to reform the intellectual property, and in particular, the patents uh, policy. The first was in 2013, September 20. It was a, a first draft policy which contained broadly the principles and proposals. It was a very poorly uh, presented po policy and it got a lot of criticism. The next policy was released in July 2016. It is what was called the IP Consultative Framework. It was published for comment. There was extensive comments from, I think, hundreds of, uh, if not thousands of comments made by academics, uh, industry, individuals, various parties and so on. And that eventually left, uh, left to a two-year process uh, of um, you know, evaluation of those comments. And in May 2018, Cabinet approved the intellectual property policy phase one, which focuses exclusively on, on public health. And this is kind of important and, in some, in, in, and it can be first of, of some sort in that uh, I, I don't know if others have other information on this, but have not come across intellectual property policy which focuses uh, specifically on public health as this one does. So in a sense, it's a very big advance. And the important thing about that is that it is based on the constitutional values, uh, you know, including the right to access health care and so on, uh, and that it takes a balanced approach to intellectual property. So unlike the Patents Act and previous legislation, which was heavily weighted in favor of the owners of intellectual property, the the patent holders, the pharmaceutical companies, and so on. Uh, here it talks about balancing their rights with the rights of consumers and users and the public at large. And in, and in particular, in a developmental state like South Africa with a large uh, you know, sector of a poor population dependent on the public health services for their health care, uh, this is actually quite important. I think the trillion dollar question is, We've had two years since the cabinet approved this policy, where is the bill? And I think this is what a lot of the current uh, pressures on government is about. I think the Fix the Patent Laws campaign, amongst others, have been uh, mobilizing to get gov government to pass this uh, bill quickly, to put, up, put out a bill and pass the act quickly, particularly in the context of COVID. Uh, and many of us as academics as well have thrown our weight behind that and have asked that the president accelerate the process. So in the next slide, briefly, what are the key reforms that this policy talks to? So of course, I mentioned earlier on that one of the critical ones is to have a proper examination system. So it's called substantive search and examination, where there will be a global search done on the quality and the uh, details 
of an application for a patent to ensure that it's truly you know, novel, contains an inventive step and so on. So that's a very important process that uh, is, is, is uh, there. And then of course, just to summarize very quickly, it has a full range of the flexibilities which civil society and others have been demanding for a long time. So for example, pre-grant opposition and post-grant opposition so that the public can have a say in the granting of a patent before it's granted, before the patent office actually makes a decision. Uh, secondly, having very strict patent patentability criteria and disclosure requirements. This is largely to overcome the problem of evergreening, where any patent which you know looks like it complies with the formalities just you know gets granted a patent. And this is also directed particularly at sort of new uses or secondary uses or, use, or, or the uh, granting of secondary patents, which of course then result in the patents having a longer life and medicines being under monopoly control for a longer period uh, and, and of course uh, uh, no competition. So therefore we don't get the, the uh, genetics and so on. Uh, and then of course they've got a whole range of exceptions, uh, including you know parallel importation, uh, sometimes a standalone flexibility, of course. And the, uh, two important further flexibilities. The one is compulsory licensing. And that is that if under certain circumstances which warrant, warrant it, uh, it's found that the patent is acting as a barrier. It's an abuse of the patent or it's a barrier to access. Then the government can give a license to a third party to compete, to produce the, the medicine and to market it. And obviously with competition, you're going to get a reduction in price. So that's a very important uh, flexibility and it's there. And of course, I just want to uh, briefly mention that there are also competition-based flexibility. So for example, if it can be proved that the behavior of the pharmaceutical manufacturer in uh, selling something at a monopoly-based price, a high profit margin and so on, is anti-competitive, in other words, it is an abuse of their patent rights, then certain remedies can be available to stop them from doing that. And usually those can be to license somebody else to compete with them. So then uh, my last slide, so I will wrap up with this one here. Um, in sum, what we've got before us is that a good policy, no bill on the table, and uh, we are no nearer to getting the kind of law that is going to protect us from this sort of greed of the pharmaceutical industry, this rampant profiteering that they are able to do with getting monopoly prices. So the first major demand is that the Patents Amendment Act that is taking into account these policy changes that are there, the reforms, should be tabled and expeditiously passed, right? Of course, that act will have to be further redefined because uh, you know, of the new situation. But even with the uh, policy as it stands, they should be sufficient in that reform process to enable us to be um, making, making use, good use of that in the COVID context. Secondly, what, what is being asked for is that a moratorium by the uh, CIPC, the Companies and Intellectual Property uh, Commission, on approving COVID-19 related patent applications. I know this is a bit contentious, but the reality is that in the middle of a pan pandemic, when there are many candidates as treatments or vaccines or whatever for COVID-19, why should a government department, which is supposed to be uh, supporting you know, uh, public health and public interest, be granting such applications? So we're saying that there should be a moratorium. If the situation changes, they can you know, consider them, but not at the moment. Thirdly, what is being uh, asked for is to use the disaster or emergency regulations 
to import or manufacture or procure products through pooling, you know, through pool procurement, but also to be able to override new um, intellectual property uh, protected technology. So, for example, if they claim a trade secret, we should be able to uh, make a regulation to say that in this context, these trade secrets should not be protected in the same way because it is impeding access to medicines. Price controls is another way that, is, uh, that can be used. Uh, but importantly, what I think we need, in addition to what we are seeing in terms of the reforms of the uh, Patents Act, a binding global agreement on the sharing of IP and technology transfer. Uh, so I think uh, Gopa will probably talk to that because that's really the, where, where the, the big debates at the global level. I just want to end up by making this one sort of kind of final comment or civil society in particular. We are looking at how we're gonna get equity and justice in the COVID sort of era. And the reality is that if we continue with business as usual in terms of you know, intellectual property being protected at these strong levels, we are not going to get equity and justice. What we need is that a new situation. We need at a global level to insist that the, uh, there are binding agreements that will make access equitable, that in fact, uh, the funding that is going to all of these initiatives uh, are done as transparently as possible with clear commitments to making access uh, equitable. And uh, where we are concerned in Africa, just to uh, understand that we are joined by some comrades from other parts of Africa as well, as South Africa is doing, I think countries need to um, update their intellectual property rules so that they can actually use the flexibilities that are there. Some recent studies have shown that many countries are reluctant to do this and have not really done it. So I think that's one area that we could uh, impose or rather impress on our governments to act on. And secondly, I think civil society as a whole should be thinking about engaging the various African Union processes. So there's a lot that's happening at the African Union level. A lot of the talk about uh, engaging in local production, but if the local production is not going to be done on a basis that will advance equity, then we are going to continue to have these problems. So uh, I'll stop there and uh, thank you for your attention. Thanks very much, Yusuf. That was really good, and it certainly set out for many of us the landscape. Um, having asked everyone to introduce themselves when they speak, I realize I forgot to introduce myself. I'm Leslie London, and uh, uh, I'm uh, with People's Health Movement in South Africa and on, at UCT. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. I, was, I came in very late, but it was very interesting listening to Yusuf. I'm from the Klapfontein district, sub-district, Heidefau and Manenberg cluster. Thank you. Hi. Yes, my name is Ui from Japan, PHM Japan. I would like to know, I, I don't know if it is a proper time to ask this question, but what do you think about this proposal by Costa Rica to WHO regarding this uh, sharing uh, IP, sharing IP, uh, the patent, sharing the patent as a global uh, common goods related to COVID medicine and testing kits and other things. Would that be uh, sort of the solution or the good proposal that we can support or not? Hey, that's all. Thank you. Uh, Yusuf, do you want to respond? Yeah, I'll, I'll respond very briefly because I realize that Gopa is going to cover this. And I think there's two things to be said about this. I think in general, yes, uh, that is a proposal that we would support. 
but I think we shouldn't see this as just, you know, a single um, silver bullet or, or magic bullet that was going to solve all the problems. You must remember that the pool that we talked that that this initiative mentions is a voluntary one. And if companies do not agree to share their technology with the pool, then it means that we reach a dead end there, which is why I think the second uh, part of it is equally important, and that is that we must be able to get binding commitments at the global level that they would share the technology. And if they do not share the technology, as countries, we must be ready with the flexibilities, with the uh, provisions for licensing and so on, to force the hand. Because if we don't have that as a, uh, as a stick, of course, then the carrot won't work. The carrot is to do it in a voluntary way. But if they decide not to uh, take up that issue, then, of course, we have to have something stronger. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Um, hi. Um, so I'm Selina Siepe. I am a student at the University of Cape Town. So um, my question to you, Yusuf, is I do understand the transparency part of the patent that you're talking about. And it's, it, does, it is a problem um, not having that transparency in terms of all the equipments that have been done. But what are some of the... I mean, negative effects of actually having that transparency. What do you think could actually um, elicit like bad reaction? Yeah, I don't know if you uh, make sense. Uh, thank you, Selena, for that question. Um, as I understand it, if we insist on there being transparency, will there be a pushback or negative effects from the owners of these uh, technologies? That's probably what you're asking, right? Yes, and yeah. also like in relation to the community or the society as a whole. Mm. Um, I mean, for example, if you have like ingredients, for example, the materials that are being used, being exposed to um, the community and just that reaction from the community, from the society, and in terms of duplication of the same equipment right. or something okay. like that yes i get you okay right so it's not so much about of course you know the proprietors of this information won't be happy because if they share it it means more people have access to it uh, and who can produce it and will compete with them so where the community is concerned i don't think that the data and the information we're talking about is somebody the kind of data and information that we would be able to use in our kitchen laboratories and, you know, manufacture these drugs and so on. I think they're very, you know, complex issues which require complex manufacturing processes and plants and so on. So I don't think that it, that would be a problem. But as a general rule, I think transparency is important because in a society where people are respected and their ability to be participate in the in a public life of their societies, uh, it's very important that they have, you know, knowledge that they can uh, be aware of what's going on. So uh, that would be my, my brief response. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we'll take one more question from Francina and then we probably need to move on. Good day, everyone. My name is Francina Ngosi, based in Lepalale, uh, in Limpopo. Thank you very much for the presentations. It was uh, eye-opening. My question is, is based on what you touched about the taxpayers. As uh, women living in the rural areas, it's very difficult for 
people, especially communities, to get access to proper medication. Meaning, if you are sick, very sick, let's say maybe in an accident, and the way you got an accident, you deserve to go to a mediclinic. They don't do that, but they will take you to the general hospital where we don't have access to proper medication. What can be done that this law can be changed, that everyone get access to these medications uh, equally. Uh, it doesn't give favor to those who can, who have access to money and those who are very poor. How that can be done so that even if you, you get banned, then you are living next to the, me- the mediclinic, they have to transport you for a long distance to the general hospital while the mediclinic should have given you the assistance in the meantime and then transfer you to the general hospital. Thank you very much. So to respond very uh, briefly, thank you Francina for that question. I think it's a very critical question you raised. And I think to say that the problems that we have in terms of accessing healthcare in the country are multiple and manifold. It's just not about the prices. We know that price is a big uh, issue in terms of the cost of medicines. And this is why if you do not have medical aid or you do not have out of, uh, you know, you don't have the spare cash to buy, pay for it yourself, you're not going to get the medication. So this patent law reform is about addressing that particular problem. But you correctly point to another very deep-seated problem, and that is that the kind of health system that we have in this country is a very unequal one, right? We have a private sector and a public sector, and you know from your experience better than most that uh, the public sector, which serves a very large sort of population, is under-resourced, which has uh, poorer facilities and so on. And this is the fate of, of a lot of people who cannot afford to pay their own way out. So I think that is another problem which has to be fixed. Hopefully it will be helped by the fact that prices can be brought down. But uh, I think you also know that, for example, government is talking about, and the bill is already out, to introduce national health insurance which was, whose objective is to equalize that system, to make sure that everybody gets the equality of services that, that you've been speaking about. So those are the things that we have to uh, consider as well. Okay, so I think we're going to have to move on. I want to thank you so for a very uh, stimulating and helpful discussion. And Francina's last question actually does make us think about what civil society will need to be doing. Solving the problem of price and protection is only one part of the puzzle. We have to think about how do we actually translate access to a vaccine into reality. So I'm going to ask Gopa KP, uh, KM Gopa Kumar, who's the legal advisor and senior researcher for the Third World Network based in New Delhi, India. Uh, he's been very active in this area of uh, intellectual property, global intellectual property regimes and its impact on developing countries and is a very active member of uh, PHM and we're very pleased he's been able to share his experience. So over to you, Bofa. Thank you. Uh, I, I'll just uh, uh, activate my uh, video for some time and then I'll like to... At the outset, uh, uh, thank you for for the PHM topic as you organized this discussion uh, and also giving me an opportunity share my views. As Professor Vatwa uh, mentioned, the broad framework of the scheme and uh, 
potential to impact actors. My presentation, I am just focusing on uh, only one part of uh, the spectrum of uh, medical products that you practice. Uh, all of us, uh, uh, all of us knows that uh, you know we need a range of medical products to uh, uh, products to. Uh, respond effectively to the COVID outbreak, uh, starting from uh, you know diagnostic kits. Uh, you need uh, personal protective equipments and a range of laboratory equipments. Plus, you need uh, diagnostic kits, uh, therapeutics, and vaccines. Uh, so, within the whole framework, if you look at the uh, pharmaceutical response, please, you need uh, vaccine. Uh, we are talking about vaccines. We are talking about some kind of antibodies, whether it's a monoclonal antibody or a, you know, antibodies we are uh, extracting from animals, or as well as medicines. But I am focusing only one part of it: vaccines. So vaccine is a complex product. Unlike medicine, it requires, uh, in, involves, uh, you know, a range of technologies which are required and to produce. And uh, from an intellectual property perspective. It also uh, involves patent uh, as well as uh, even trade secrets. So some of these are uh, protected as trade secrets. So you need, uh, it is a technologically much more complex product uh, compared to compared to a medicine. So the vaccine is at the same time is the, uh, is the kind of center of R&D activities uh, related to uh, COVID-19. Because the vaccine can, uh, there are two types of vaccine, a preventive vaccine or a treatment vaccine. In any way, it is much more effective. And if it's a preventive vaccine, and if the vaccine is very efficacious, a one dose of vaccination or a two dose of or a treatment dose of vaccine can even uh, prevent the uh, future outbreak. So, therefore, vaccine is very important. So, before getting into the details of uh, this, let me also spend a few minutes to explain the concept of public good. The concept of uh, public good means unlike many other goods, it, it, when a good is called, a good, uh, set of goods is called a public goods or a public good, then it became a non-trivialness or non-exclusive. So these are the two characteristics. It doesn't, uh, basically, if it is taken, say, for example, in the air, if you breathe or someone else breathes, okay, it's not uh, acting as rival to each other, both of us, uh, or um, many people can enjoy that uh, good, but at the same time, it doesn't affect the enjoyment of the other person. Similarly, it is not non-exclusive. So this is the uh, uh, character or salient feature of a uh, public good compared to uh, any other goods. Okay, if you if, if, any other good, if you take it away from that person, that person there is a reduction in the, the quantity of that good that person possesses, and it also becomes very you know if I have the other person do not have so. So it's also in a way exclusive. So if you remove this, if you can make it good, it became non-trivialist and non-exclusive, then it becomes a public good. So characterization of a uh, medical product as a public good means every record people people get that product and they can access the product both physically as well as economy. So that's why it is important to treat a medical product like a medicine or vaccine as a public good. It's very important because that will determine a characterization of a medical product as a public good will determine how that product is produced, how that product is being distributed. So that would uh, that would shape the uh, market that for product, maybe you know, to keep, you know to uh, put it very briefly. So 
So keep, please keep that in mind. And now let us look at the COVID vaccine scenario. So there are around 167 vaccine candidates are at the various stages of development. So they are using different types of technology. Some technologies are like a very old technology. So some technologies are, you know, very new. Uh, so for the first time, such a uh, technology is being uh, deployed. So we have around eight types of technology platforms. There are 167 vaccine candidates at the various stages of development. Out of this 167 candidates, or there could be more, but at least 13 candidates have entered into human trials. So that means they are, these 13 candidates are in a very advanced stage. And one of the leading candidates is a vaccine developed by the Oxford University General Institute, and which when entered the um, manufacturing arrangement with AstraZeneca, and AstraZeneca in turn entered into an you know, advanced purchase agreement with the various countries and also with various institutions like Gavi. So there are, uh, uh, who is funding, or who are funders against these uh, vaccine initiatives? It is mainly funded by various public institutions, philanthropic foundations. So the involvement of private money is there, but it is less. It's by and large, all these initiatives are funded through the public institutions, either government or philanthropic foundations. And one of these big initiatives called, uh, at the international level, called ACT. That's called access covid tool accelerator basically this means this uh, initiative has three pillars one pillar is looking at developing diagnostics at an affordable and uh, you know effective di uh, diagnostics kits so you can diagnose with, uh, covid very quickly second pillar is um, called a vaccine pillar which is basically to uh, look at the develop the new vaccines and Third pillar is therapeutics to develop much more efficacious therapeutics product for the to do to treat uh, COVID. So there are three initiatives, and ACT is also uh, funded by the public, uh, various public institutions, various countries have put money into ACT. Uh, actually, while we are talking, actually there is a press conference in progress at the WHO headquarters uh, related to uh, access uh, ACT accelerator. Um, vaccine developing a vaccine is important, but if that developed vaccine which is efficacious but cannot access or cannot afford to the people, then there is no use. So, therefore, it is important that this vaccine is available at an affordable cost and it is also available in quantity because, as we always say, if one is not safe, one person is not safe, then all of us are not safe kind of situation is because if any country or any group of people who are not uh, obtain, uh, getting this vaccination then they can even spread that uh, disease so therefore it is important that a critical mass of people develop the immunity and get the access so so in a way you know uh, if developed countries think that okay they can escape through the through the vaccination and developing countries may not you know, they will get it in of course, may not resolve the problem. That also make the make the people vulnerable for further etc. Therefore, the uh, it depends. Of course, it also depends upon the efficacy of the vaccine. But it is important to uh, ensure access at a at a global level. Uh, it's important to have an effective response to, to uh, COVID outbreak. So, therefore, 
people, uh, many people, including the UN Secretary General, many times, multiple times, said that uh, a vaccine is a global public good. Uh, so even uh, I, I just you can see the quote uh, from the French president while speaking at the opening of the World Health Assembly. He said that uh, COVID, if we discover a vaccine against COVID, it would be a global public good, and everyone should have access to it. So what does it mean when we talk about global public good? So uh, it should be produced at a large scale, and all required person should have access to that product. So how will we achieve that? There should be, there should not be, first of all, no monopoly for that, right? And there should be uh, huge production, uh, uh, huge quantity of production. Okay. So I'll come to that in a second. Um, but while the resolution which talks about, uh, adopted by the World Health Assembly, vaccine is not treated as public global public good, but vaccination is treated as a global public good. You can see the operational paragraph 6 reads, it recognizes the role of extensive immunization against COVID-19 as a public good for health in preventing, containing, and stopping transmission to bring the pandemic to an end. So it is not the vaccine that is uh, treated as a public good, but the vaccination is treated as a public good. That means you have to spend money and you have to obtain it. But you have, in a way, every uh, WHO member states have an obligation to vaccinate it okay, because it's a public good. But how do you obtain that vaccine? If there is no clarity. Next slide, please. So how do, how do we translate uh, the public good into action? So most important thing is that, uh, you know, as we all know, that non-exclusivity is uh, one of the characteristics of the public good. How do we ensure non-exclusivity is basically true? Is eliminating the monopoly. So, the, uh, how do you end one of the important uh, legal tools which reinforces or we, which is, uh, legitimizes monopoly is through intellectual property protection. Uh, uh, already uh, explained to you that in detail. Okay, so the IP barriers is an important feature of uh, uh, you know uh, important feature of a monopoly. And second, through technology, vaccine. As I told you, it's a complex technology. Even though there may not be any patent still there would be barriers to produce that that is mainly emanating from the a complexity involved in the technology so you need a proactive step to transfer the technology to enhances the production why the technology transfer is important because you need a local production you need a decentralized production to to, to meet the huge demand otherwise if there are only two manufacturers who producers then uh, you know again there is a concentration of production. This concentration of production basically will uh, act as a barrier uh, in the uh, to access this uh, product. Uh, no, we 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 have seen uh, in the uh, beginning of the outbreak related to PPEs etc. Many countries do not have the production uh, facilities for PPEs because there was a concentration of production and supply. They were all depending upon the supply chain, but the supply chain disrupted. Uh, due to uh, you know, outbreaks in China or the demand which emanated after the spread of Corona in other countries. So many countries were facing difficulties to access this product. So therefore, to avoid that, we needed decentralized production, uh, local production to meet the uh, demand. And to that, we need technology transfer. So no IT and no techno uh, and, uh, uh, technology transfer uh, are 
very important features to translate the concept of global public good into action. Next, next slide. So, uh, in a way, identifying the challenges, the UN adopted a resolution around end of uh, uh, end of March. Uh, UN adopted a resolution. In that resolution, UN basically requested the General Assembly requested the Secretary General to and also work member states to work in partnership with all relevant stakeholders to increase research and development funding for vaccines and medicines and also to strengthen scientific international cooperation necessary to combat combat COVID-19 and foster coordination, including the private sector. For a rapid development, manufacturer and it also the same resolution also asked the UN Secretary General to work with WHO and to uh, ensure the access access of uh, access to various medical products including vaccines so this resolution clearly here says that an international cooperation so that's why one of the important principles in response to uh, covid is solidarity right no, you don't act uh, uh, in a very nationalistic way if everybody is acting then to protect their own country at the cost of other country may hamper uh, may not achieve that objective because if one country is not safe then you are also not uh, very safe so therefore and this will have implications then uh, you might be safe in a way but you may not be able to do business with the other countries and so various uncertainties emergence may emerge so therefore solidarity is an important uh, concept and to achieve that solidarity uh, you need a product and you do not have a vaccine so it's important to work in a coordinated way, so you can expedite the uh, expedite the innovation. That's what uh, uh, in the earlier presentation mentioned that you know sharing of sequencing and uh, gene sequencing etc. became uh, in a way in a way an effort to expedite the innovation process. IP uh, concerns or your cost for intellectual property protection may delay the innovation process because everybody wants to protect their own intellectual property the expectation of earning a profit in future so this may delay the sharing so sharing very important at this case and uh, if you have an ip interest then that may delay the sharing of your uh, invention uh, r and outcomes or finding your colleagues or other other researchers so please keep that in mind so the un resolution said this and uh, and we have uh, uh, the coming to the WHO resolution. So the UN resolution gave a mandate for coordinated action, and also uh, I did not produce, I did not reproduce that part. I also asked the UN Secretary General to act along with the WHO to uh, have a mechanism uh, to ensure access to existing and future products. So taking that forward, the WHO also adopted a, a WHA also adopted a resolution, and which requested the Director General of WHO to identify and provide options that respect the provisions relevant to international treaties and and, and also uh, to develop a mechanism um, uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, to manufacturing and distribution capacities needed for transparent, stable and timely access. So basically it means it asked uh, the resolution uh, requested the Director General to develop a mechanism to ensure access uh, in an suitable and timely manner. So taking forward mandate next, taking forward this uh, mandate from mandate from these resolutions, WHO is currently working on 
something called a global allocation mechanism. So the idea is that you assess the need and accordingly you create a uh, global mechanism wherein which you can uh, have better negotiations with the companies and you can drive down the price and then you procure on a global procurement mechanism where then you can allocate to the countries as per, per certain criteria. So what are the criteria WHO is developing? So WHO has made a presentation recently last week not much details are available but it basically gives two information one is that it proposes a global mechanism to allocate vaccine on a priority population okay not all the first thing the priority is health workers and second is people above 65 years then other high risk populations and the total coverage would be around 1.1 billion people okay that is 1150 million so covering these three groups and uh, this, which require around they say uh, 2.6 billion doses so 1.1 billion population and 2.6 billion doses that is what uh, uh, the WHO's estimation but WHO has not given any details of the country uh, I sorry for the uh, type of the country wide allocation okay not available okay and what are the principal these are the three population and but on what basis uh, they are going to allocate this this amount of doses to various countries? That's not very clear because they are in a way the WHO's one slide shows a choice. They say you can have a country, you can have a, a procurement mechanism, or when you can have a regional mechanism, or you can have a global mechanism. But they say that the global mechanism will have much more benefit rather than a, a, a you know, individual country or a, a regional mechanism but uh, it is said to be uh, finalized we do not know but at the same time we should uh, also be aware of gavi so the uh, what so according to who document what is the mechanism the important mechanism to deliver under the global uh, allocation mechanism is through the gavi's advanced market commitment so, so i'll explain you later uh, what is an advanced uh, market commitment so gavi has set it up a facility called covax facility that is means forward vaccine facility this mechanism uh, is created for a especially for covid because otherwise uh, gavi procured with, uh, various vaccines for a group of countries which is uh, called as eligible countries under the gavi's definition what, what is gavi's model gavi to the global procurement so the global procurement will drive down the price okay what we like to keep it in mind unlike medicine vaccine market is controlled by a few companies okay there are uh, not many manufacturers in the vaccine areas okay there are certain vaccines are produced by two or three companies at, at the global level so therefore it's a very more uh, you know oligopoly or a, even sometimes a monopoly market there so the under the COVAX uh, facility, Gavi wants to enhance their procurement to globally, including all the countries who are interested. Okay. And the initial estimate of uh, one the funding requirement is two billion US dollar for uh, the first year. They already got around five hundred million seed fund to kickstart the process. And this global COVAX facility, so the Gavi's COVAX facility, includes the financing mechanism. As well as a procurement mechanism, they, so they finance and also procure. 
the medical vaccine. What is the main vehicle to deliver this? Uh, it is to the advanced, uh, sorry, advanced market commitment. Okay, again, there is a uh, typo. Sorry for that. Advanced market commitment. What is an advanced market commitment? Advanced market commitment is a contract ended by the Gavi with the uh, companies that uh, we will, uh, if the drug is developed, if the vaccine is developed, we are going to buy these mini doses. Okay, so they give an assurance. Uh, it is not only an assurance. There would be a transfer of money also takes place because it also, in a way, helps the companies to uh, to fast track the development because they have to set up the production uh, facilities, they have to expedite the uh, expedite the R and D. So some amount of trans uh, money transfer also takes place. It is not uh, you know the commitment will. It, it is not like that. The commitment will come into operation only after the. Medicine is up. Uh, the sorry, the vaccine is approved for human use. Prior to that, a certain money transfer takes place because they have to build up the enhance the production capability. So, what is the situation of these uh, AMCs right now, and what are the concerns related to that? First concern, which I have not mentioned here, but most important concern is that there is no guarantee that uh, this AMC will ensure the access because it all depends upon the science and the uh, the if. Uh, you know, you need to get a efficacious product. Sometimes the product may not come. Even sometimes there are the, uh, uh, in the case of uh, Ebola. So, in the case of Ebola, actually, Gavi transferred uh, around $5 million uh, to develop that product to Merck. But the vaccine never came into the market. And uh, the money which transferred, and there was no clause in the agreement to get it back. So, here also there is such risk. And second, the competing AMCs are there. Everybody is using advanced market commitment. You might have read, USA agree, already entered into uh, market commitment to purchase medicines from certain companies, including AstraZeneca. When European Union is going to enter into uh, AMCs with uh, various manufacturers. So there is a, uh, uh, the main mode of ensuring vaccine is through uh, advanced market commitment. So there is a, Competing advanced market commitment. This competing advanced market commitment may lead to excess, uh, uh, you know, uh, excessive demand and uh, excessive prices. Okay. Then we have multiple AMCs. So Gavi is going to enter into AMCs with not one company, with many companies. We don't have no, uh, we don't have any predictability which product is going to come into the market first, right? And third. We may end up in getting, you know, suboptimal efficacious vaccine. Okay, a vaccine which may not be fully efficacious, or uh, you may have the vaccines. For example, the vaccine's duration might be for a year. So every year you may have to take. Okay? You have already entered the agreement. You <laughs> you are you know you are you are supposed to buy this product, and then maintaining a monopoly. Okay, there is these AMCs are. Basically, reinforcing the monopoly. He's not going to promote uh, you know, technology transfer or local production, etc. And it will always come with the intellectual property protection because it gives a free hand to the free hand to the the uh, vaccine developer. Okay, so th there is nothing in the past we have seen is AMCs have actually bargaining with the producers to te uh, for technology transfer or to uh, go against the IP protection. 
So we have not seen any of those things. And this is much more critical, uh, the Gavi's approach. What is the principle of uh, UN or WHO set it up for uh, accessing these products? They say equitable access. But if you look at the Gavi has come out with a discussion paper called the COVAX uh, document, discussion paper, there is proposals, two types of, they are uh, dividing countries into two tiers. The first countries who are rich countries who can pay. So they can enter into an agreement with Gavi and pay the money and Gavi will negotiate for them to get the product. So they can get a certain percentage of the products, how much they pay for it. Okay, There is no string attached. The sole only string is the money. Okay, You want uh, to cover your 20% of the population, so you pay the money and you can get it. But the second category of countries, that's the low and middle income countries. For them, the facility will, it is written that the facilities will work to structure enough doses enable allocation in this group to vaccine at least their highest priority population okay rinse those for this group of countries will be allocated to distribute across countries according to the who allocation framework it's based on transparent ethical uh, public health criteria okay? so it's then based on the who criteria so you have uh, already divided countries into two groups and also put Two type rules for uh, you know, uh, or a separate rule for each country to uh, to access this product. So this goes against the principles of equitable access. So let me now conclude. The major concern related to the vaccine, COVID vaccine, is that uh, concern is that even though everybody call it as a global public good, not a uh, global public good. Equitable uh, access has been compromise because you have categorizing countries into two groups and putting two sets uh, and applying two sets of rules to uh, these groups then the affordable access we do not know exactly at what prices whether it is the cost pricing is going to apply or are they going to include R&D expenditure and other uh, elements to price this product that's where the price is going to be very high and we should also understand that the development of this vaccine involves a lot of public money. Okay, It is not the private money which is, uh, or the company's own money which is put for the development. Okay, So therefore, and on top of it, there is an advanced market commitment also. Still, we have no clarity with regard to the price or how the pricing is going to be made. Then uh, effectively, this all reinforcing the monopoly because there is no commitment for technology transfer. There is... Uh, no guarantee that IP barriers will not be there uh, to access this product. And uh, in, a, in short, I would say that uh, what uh, these mechanisms or proposed mechanisms are basically de-risking the development cost, annual production, annual marketing, and but facilitating the profit making to AMCs and non-transparent pricing mechanisms. Even though Gavi uh, says they would publish the price, you know, in the interest of transparency, but uh, how exactly they arrive at that price, you don't know. You will be able to know that uh, exact uh, components uh, involved in the uh, pricing of uh, that final product. So let me conclude here. Thank you. Thanks, Gopa. Um, I think that was a very helpful overview of the international context and what we need to do as civil society in one country and linking up with other countries. I'm going to ask. Chase in our lady, if she wants to kind of 
reflecting on the two talks, comments on what she thinks is a challenge for civil society in South Africa going forward. Uh, uh, Tracy is a, a chief director. She's a public health uh, medicine specialist. She's a chief director in the health department, currently doing her PhD, but she's also chair of the board of Tucano, which is an NGO promoting health equity uh, and has been active in various civil society platforms. So. Uh, I'm going to hand over to Tracy to provide a bit of a reflection on this and get our discussion going as to what we should be doing as civil society. Tracy, over to you. Thank you, Leslie. So thank you very much uh, for this opportunity. And I think in terms of uh, what uh, my sense is around how we civil society could um, impact on this. I think the first, which is really centered around this very moment, is to educate and prepare ourselves. And I think thanks to People's Health Movement for creating this platform and for um, inviting um, the speakers, because I think it's quite important for us to have a space where we can actually have these safe spaces to truly understand and ask questions, uh, because... Uh, I think part of the access also has to do with language. And I think oftentimes as civil society, when we engage with some of these technical issues, they are incredibly difficult to understand. So, uh, so I think these spaces are terribly important where we can actually unpack these difficult concepts and, and, and be able to engage with them. So I think, as Leslie said, I'm the chairperson of an NGO called Tekano, and Tekano is a Susutu word that means equality. And what we do is we work with um, change agents who are already working on issues of health equity, and we work with them in uh, to kind of strengthen their capacities in three ways. So um, I'm going to kind of use that framework of head, heart, and hands, which is what we, we talk about in Tegano around framing what I think are some of the things we can be thinking about as civil society. The first one around the head, uh, saying that really as, as change agents, we need to be critical thinker and be quite analytic and analytical, uh, particularly in the context of complexity. And as I said, I, I think spaces like this and others where as civil society, we really can grapple with some of these difficult issues. So I think uh, definitely more of what is happening now and more spaces and more time for us to really understand some of these difficult issues. Because even these presentations, I can imagine that um, there are a lot of questions that perhaps pertain with just understanding what the issues are and what it is that it's saying and how we can engage with it. So the second one around heart, I think it's about some of the issues that have also been alluded to in, in the talks, which is understanding the importance of people, the importance of relationships, the importance of, of, of collaboration and con connectedness across disciplines and sectors. And I think it's been quite nice to have academics that can come and engage with civil society actors and be able to share information. And as I said, to be able to, to help us to prepare. And the other is around being inclusive and amplifying the voice of, of the more marginalized. And I think the HIV AIDS movement has shown us that this is possible 
because the perception has always been, you know, like, you know, these medical things are way too complicated. Poor people can never understand them. And most importantly, people, poor people may never, you know, won't be able to understand it uh, to, to, to even engage. And I think we've proven that to be false on many levels. And I think um, uh, the point that I made earlier around having safe spaces to really unpack and understand these complicated and, and what seems to be things that are, are not understandable into bite sizes where people, everybody can understand. And so that all of us can really feel like we have a voice and agency to be able to advocate for the things that we want and, and availability of medicines and technologies. And with regards to hands, which is about acting and doing, I think these spaces also, and I think Yusuf alluded in his talk, that there are spaces that already exist that we may not be aware of where we can identify what are these spaces where we can leverage, what are the spaces where we can engage, what are the spaces where we can have some influence. And certainly within Tekano, one of the things we pay quite a lot of attention for is around understanding the wide range of political tools and advocacy tools that we can use with decision makers and to understand that we need to have these multiple dialogues with um, uh, decision makers, high level stakeholders, ministers and health ministers, etc., and have these policy dialogues such that actually when they act at the global level, they know what it is that um, civil society and the people on the ground want, and we continue to apply pressure for those issues to remain on the table. And I think Francina's question earlier about uh, access to care is quite important because all of, in, in all of this, and I think other speakers have alluded to this as well, around the fact that we still need to put the pressure around advocacy for universal health care, ensuring that there's equity of access, particularly in South Africa with this public and private divide where 80% of, of resources are used to less than 20% of, of, of people and, and ensuring that we really implement universal health care and ensuring social uh, solidarity. And I think COVID-19, and I won't repeat, has really shown the importance of that and some of these um, fractures in communities that as a result of inequity. And our advocacy, I agree completely with some of the speakers that have spoken about increased capacity for domestic production of some of these active ingredients. And I think also to, uh, aligned to that, to lobby and advocate for our own governments and also regionally for more money to be put on, on local research and development. And uh, part of some of the work that uh, Lizzie and I actually have done within the Western Cape Department of Health was to look at you know, just health research and who funds it. And it's incredible how little our own governments actually fund research. And, and I think if they can have money to fund the army and the defense, certainly in terms of understanding what is really valued by its people, they can certainly make money available for local research and development. And issues of connection are very important and engaging at global level because I think as we've heard that a lot of the issues actually are happening at the global level and have an impact on the local level. Um, and then I think other speakers have spoken quite eloquently around that. And maybe to, to speak a little bit around uh, Francina's question around access 
to these commodities on the ground, I think we have to be quite intentional with our implementation plans. And I think we can advocate for that. And I think around ensuring that the implementation plans particularly have an equity lens to them, where we prioritize the most vulnerable. So I think, you know, when we actually get to the ground, and I think we've seen with COVID-19, that actually it's the, it's the most vulnerable that get affected first. So in fact, in terms of implementation, when these vaccines become available and other um, technologies become available, we have to insist that our government's implementations plan must have an, an equity lens, and we start with the most vulnerable. And also in terms of monitoring, I think civil society definitely has a role around monitoring on the, whether those implementation plans are implemented in a way that ensures that coverage prioritizes women, children, people of low socioeconomic status, etc. And, and so I think it, it's really important that there are mechanisms around which we can do that. And I think that the issue of monitoring is quite important because I remember within um, uh, HIV AIDS, um, uh, one of the things I was responsible for in the department is around the ARV program. And so there was a, a time where um, South Africa lobbied quite heavily for, for prices for ARVs to, to be reduced. And, but what we noticed is that there was this price creep. So there is the success of, of getting uh, prices that are reduced. But whilst we're not looking, there is this price creep that one time you look back and you realize that they're quite clever about allowing the price reductions, but they've <laughs> recouped it over time with the, with the price increases, such that if you look at the inflation of commodities, of, of drugs within the health department, it's much higher than the inflation rate that you'll find at normal inflation because of these price increases. And I think there's a role for civil society um, to have some kind of advisory committee that would have very close collaboration with higher education institutions uh, in particular for the reasons that I have alluded to. And uh, I think it's quite important for us to continue to, to, to push and create the pressure. And I think it's important to do it both um, in public and in private. As I said, it's important to have the, the public uh, pressure to, to and also to counterbalance, particularly some of the pharmaceutical missing, industry misinformation that happens on the public domain, but to actually make sure that we lobby also internally with uh, some of the stakeholders, as I have uh, mentioned before. Some of the other things that I've realized, so one of the things that's happening right now at the moment with cancer drugs is that even though government will take out a, a tender to say, you know, can companies please tender for these drugs? The companies just don't tender because they know if they don't tender, government will then be forced to do buyouts, which will, is more expensive than the tender price. So also to put, and, and, and for civil society to also um, a lobby and put pressure on these pharmaceutical industries to actually put in the tender so that they don't use the back door to ensure that they still charge um, high prices. Um, those are kind of my comments to, to, to say, uh, really, as I said, it's around the head and, and us having the capacity to be able to, to, to engage with these issues and an understanding of connection and the role that we can have across sectors and things like that, and also our advocacy and the things that we can do around that. And I think what is very quite critical, I think, is, is collaboration and for us to work across sectors with like-minded people that can really strengthen our hands and our capacity to be able to engage. And I'll leave it there, uh, Leslie. Thank you.
Okay, thanks very much, Tracy. I think you've given us a lot to discuss going forward. And we really wanted to use the last part of this meeting to think about what we can do as civil society. We have a health working group under the Civil Society COVID uh, People's Coalition. So it's open to the floor for um, comments and discussion. Peter, kick us off. Yeah, I was waiting for somebody else to speak first, but... Uh, <laughs> You're up. Yeah, no, 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 no luck. Uh, thank you very much to the, the, all the speakers, uh, including the one who had to leave, unfortunately. Um, and uh, it's a monumental task facing us at this point. Uh, but I think what I've raised in the, the health working group of the C19 coalition is that the canary in the coal mine here is what's going on with testing. I think Yusuf raised the important issues beyond simply patents, but uh, the trade secrets, the single sourcing, all of these things we're seeing play out in terms of access to RNA extraction kits, access to testing materials. And the, the challenge is that this is not just demanding compulsory licensing. This is, at this point, if we want to speed up testing worldwide, we have to demand immediate technology transfer. The Netherlands, the government of the Netherlands did this and was able to get access to Roach's proprietary formulas for making reagents. But as Dr. Naledi pointed out, we have not sufficiently developed the so-called bioeconomy in South Africa. And, and were we to get access to all the formulas we need, we would not be in a position to manufacture them. So it cannot be a thing about saying South Africa needs this or South Africa needs that. It's We're going to have to say that this technology transfer needs to happen on a wide scale so that manufacturers anywhere in the world can contribute to manufacturing. And I think people understand how far we are from people in general understanding that companies have to give up their family jewels. You know, they have to give up their profit-making components in order to fight a pandemic. And we, we know, uh, as others have mentioned, the, uh, where we, we are standing at this point with the rhetoric around this. It's, 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 it's seen as dangerous communism or something. Yeah, this issue of testing, as I say, is this is what's... If we don't win this one, we're going to be 10 steps back when it comes to fighting the next one in terms of vaccines because we will not have won the, the, the framing battle, as, as Dr. Naledi put it. Okay, thanks, Peter. So you, you're basically pointing us in the direction of a kind of set of demands uh, and how to contextualize it in a way that works. I see Nsiki and Moses. Nsiki, for you. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you so very much for the sharing. My question goes to the second speaker. I'm not sure if he's still around. The one who presented on the access on the vaccine that are being considered, the 107. My first question is, how will it be accessible to African can, I mean, countries that are developing, especially in terms of affordability and the equitability to access them for, from the African point of view? And then my second question is on the, those at risk. There were health workers and those who are above 65 years of, of age. What about those who said the high risk? Who are those who are at high risk, apart from the health workers and those who are above 65? Who are included in the, in the other high risk people? That's what I wanted to know. Thank you. 
Thanks, Moses. Uh, over to you, Gopa. Hi. Quickly respond to the question. Uh, African countries, by a lot, supposed to be covered under the Gavi eligible countries, and uh, Gavi will prefer, and uh, they use the donations, and uh, you know they are going to get from various countries and international funding to procure and freely distribute to these countries. But then the criteria will be determined by who will get that medicine, to whom it should be, and what could be the dosage for each country will be determined by the WHO. And second on the high-risk population, basically people uh, have comorbidities like diabetic, asthmatic, and uh, cardio-related problems, and cancer patients. So these are the high-risk populations. in the conductor for thank you just one point i just want to underline here south africa is part of the act accelerator okay when representing the african union also uh, as part of the act accelerator and plays a major role uh, major role in the yeah. act administration so they can yeah. sort of uh, play much more active role to ensure equitable access Thanks, uh, Gopal. So it poses a challenge to us to be active not just for South Africans but for the region. Thank you, Leslie, and thank you to to the speakers. Uh, I have uh, two questions. Uh, one is directed to Gopal. The other one, I think, to to Tracy. So, I mean, the the question to Gopal really um, relates to the WHO allocation framework. and its intentions so what i want to know is to what extent is the attitude and the threats by the president of the united states going to impact uh, access uh, to to the vaccine you know because he's threatening to withdraw funding uh, from the who and uh, one assumes that that will immediately have an impact to the development of the vaccines because they i mean they have the funds to contribute uh, to that we provide the platform and also um the, the people uh, who avail themselves to test those vaccines so how will that uh, influence uh, access then and then the question to tracy is really uh, about the quality of ppes uh, i mean if you look at what is happening in the schools uh, just looking at the masks uh, availability of water uh, especially in the eastern cape which is the province that i come from you find that quality is compromised which means that even when people have access it's really going to be ineffective in achieving what it's intended to achieve and also in instances where one tank is sold for an, ex- an exorbitant uh, price it means then that other people will not have access uh, to water that they need to to have access to so uh, what will be the role then of uh, the people's movement in ensuring uh, that you know there's equitable access uh, to those basic resources really that uh, focus in a preventative strategy in the first instance but also i expected that um, along with the legislation uh, that is being developed every day that there would be a directive uh, towards a price freeze but what we have seen is that everybody has their own price i mean you go from one shop to the other and the, the prices vary immensely and also if you're looking at the sanitizers i mean 
I suppose coming from the lab environment, I only have to smell the sanitizers and I can tell you that the, the percentage of the alcohol that is there is really not enough, uh, you know, to be effective. So then how do we address then uh, on the ground? Because I mean, it's the majority of the people who will be compromised if we're not meeting those minimum requirements. Thank you. Okay, Gopa, do you want to respond first? Yeah, uh, my of course, definitely it will affect the, the PHO's uh, ability to provide uh, the, uh, its technical guidance and coordination in the context of COVID outbreak, definitely. But uh, it's not going to affect any kind of back development. Those back development finance coming from various other sources, and uh, there are many other European countries of uh, money for the back development. So, therefore, it will not be affected by this trouble. But US also entered into agreements with some of these companies to uh, secure the supply. So, that will not have an impact on, uh, on back development. But if that's in a way, also US trouble from US, from WHO, maybe also in a way, uh, strengthen um, uh, the WHO's hands to have much more of a public health uh, uh, oriented approach to medical production. Thank you. Okay, uh, Tracy, do you want to respond? Uh, thank you very much, Nsiki, for, for, for your question. I think for me, um, what this COVID-19 pandemic has really shown us the importance of, of investing in institutions. And I think the issue that you ask around quality of um, the masks and things like that, we really should have had processes in our country that would prevent that happening. Firstly, at the governance level, I mean, we've got the um, South African Bureau of Standards. And I mean, the question is, why are we then having poor quality products, particularly for something as important as this, when in fact our own government has said that they uh, close attention to importing of PPE using the Solidarity Fund. And I am aware that there is a centralized process around uh, procurement, particularly for public institutions. So if that is happening, the question is that the institution that is supposed to ensure quality of such products has dropped the ball somehow. And I think um, that's what we've seen in this COVID-19 pandemic is that actually the weak institutions have shown themselves and in the context of a pandemic have actually shown their weaknesses and inadequacies. And also when we go to the ground around implementation, also, I mean, some of my comments that I made earlier around the role of civil society to ensure that they're monitoring both implementation and the quality of these things. And at the end of the day, talking about transparency, and I mean, transparency has so many elements to it, you know. So, for example, around this particular issue, it would be really good if those who are on the call phase who are receiving products should know exactly what kind of specifications are expected so that if I'm a teacher and I'm getting a mask that is not in line with the specifications that are required, I can actually say, hang on a minute, there's something wrong with this mask, etc., and, and have mechanisms to take them back. So these quality mechanisms, I think, have to go a long way. And I, and I think um, some of the things that have been done within the health department, and I, and I think they are, are largely around uh, health, health service delivery, but I think they give us almost something to leapfrog from where we've got um, national core standards, where they're looking at, and I'm, I've actually seen 
um, other in, uh, sectors as well implementing quality assurance processes similar to, to the national health standards. I saw one for um, HEIs the other day, for example. So I definitely think um, your question about uh, quality has multiple levels to it, and, and it's about making sure that we do invest in those institutions that will ensure that from the wet go when products come into our country, they are of high quality, and also when they are delivered at the call phase at the implementation level. Um, and I think it speaks to some of my comments around ourselves as service providers, as civil societies, to have the knowledge around these things. You know, we need to educate ourselves and we need to know, you know, um, we can't say it's somebody else's business. We need to have the information because part of the challenge is that, you know, we are in this knowledge economy and, and, and knowledge is very important. So, that, that is where I would, and, 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 and to have very strong civil society mechanisms on the ground that could also be looking at, at quality of service delivery and some of these products. Uh, thank so thanks, Tracy. So I'm going to comment as well about that. So I came across a member of the public who discovered that a big supermarket chain was selling uh, hand sanitizer with 5% alcohol. He complained, he complained and he got nowhere. So all the mechanisms for complaining failed him. And I think it reflects the fact that the market uh, is not the right way to deliver public goods. I mean, that's the problem. We're relying on the market to get sanitizers, which are essential for the COVID um, epidemic. And so an informed public would have been certain, but we also needed mechanisms to hold that um, retailer accountable. Eventually, they were pressurized and they had withdrawn it. It was a product they actually put on the market during the drought when we were short of water. And I thought, okay, we'll sell it under COVID because there's a demand for sanitizer. Uh, it's more or less criminal that they were selling something that was ineffective to people who thought they were protected. But it does raise the question of the market and does raise the question of how effective can monitoring be unless we have some teeth to make the monitoring work. So I think that is a challenge for us as civil society to make sure that it's not just monitoring government, but it's also monitoring the private sector as we introduce new technologies. Any other comments or suggestions people want to make about what civil society should be doing going forward at this juncture? Louis, over to you. Um, hi, I'm Louis Reynolds from uh, People's Health Movement in, in South Africa. Now, I think um, what civil society should also be doing, apart from making demands, uh, is kind of breaking down the language that makes it acceptable that some people are more equal than others. To promote the idea of, of health as a public good and focus our kind of language on equity, social justice, social solidarity, and so on. I think, um, I think it's completely absurd that in an emergency like this, we can have such blatant inequalities as that testing, for example, and access to healthcare. And, and no real effort to kind of fix it. The language of uh, private and public being kind of normal, that a powerful private sector is a normal thing. It's not normal. It's completely bloody um, absurd when you're talking about a common good. That's me. Thanks. Okay, so that's a framing suggestion for the campaign. Any other actions people think that civil society should think about? We've had ideas about monitoring. We've certainly had ideas about educating ourselves and educating communities. We've had ideas about engaging in different spaces, uh, national and global. 
I don't know if anyone wants to think about what South African civil society could be doing in processes outside South Africa. If we are part of the, is it the AMC that COPA outlined, would we not be lobbed our government to be more active in the support of equity-oriented policies through that? Any, any comments or suggestions? Okay, if there are no more comments or suggestions, we're probably going to have to round off. So I'm going to thank both Gopa and Yusuf in his absence and Tracy for making a, a response. PHM will um, pull some of this discussion together and maybe circulate a or post on our website probably a, a brief summary and some of the, the areas for future action. I think there are suggestions made around education, about uh, making um, the issues simplified for ourselves and for communities and for our stakeholders. There are key framing issues we need to put into the messaging. There's a whole set of uh, dialogues and engagements we can initiate, place that both in a national and a global context, and certainly avoid a two-tier approach to vaccine availability that... Uh, outlined. So I want to thank everyone for being part of the seminar, uh, the webinar, and uh, look out on our website for uh, future communications. And um, thank you to all. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you, everybody. Have a lovely weekend. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much.